and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we talk about some of today's big issues in foreign affairs with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow in foreign policy at the Cato Institute. I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. And today we're having a special Christmas edition of Power Problems. Uh, We thought we'd have an entirely news-free edition so that you can all recover from everything that we have experienced together over the last year. And instead, we're going to revisit a question that we've asked all of our guests throughout the year. And that is what they think the most underappreciated threats to America are and what they think the most overhyped threats to America are. And so we're going to start by listening to our guests talk about what they think the most underhyped threat to America is. And and surprisingly, there's a lot of variety in this answer. Yeah, this is um, this is a series of very interesting answers uh, from a group of people looking at very different parts of the world. Our first guest is John Glazer. Uh, Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. The biggest threat to American national security resides in 16 Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, He is, as we've discussed, someone who flies off the handle. He's willing to use force uh, without um, um, respecting American legal and constitutional uh, uh, standards. When he threw 59 Tomahawk missiles at Syria, he didn't uh, deign to ask permission from Congress. Most of Congress found out about it from the cable news stations. Um, Trump is someone who not only gets us, can get us into trouble uh, externally, but he also is someone who, um, you know, uh, has authoritarian tendencies. So uh, if we have a president who capriciously fires disloyal law enforcement officials like FBI director, former FBI director James Comey. That can create all kinds of internal problems that actually do make us less safe, not only from external threats, but from the constitutional protections that make Americans safe from their own government. Um, So Trump is the biggest national security threat we face without a doubt. Our next guest is Samira Lalwani from the Stimson Center, who works on issues related to South Asia. So, again, this is probably speaking from ignorance, but I have been uh, surprised at the level of uh, threats that are vulnerabilities the United States uh, betrays when it comes to um, cyber vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I don't think that's an underrepresented threat in the United States. I think there's certainly a lot of people playing it up and, and hi- potentially hyping it. But it's one that may be, may be underappreciated, particularly um, from you know, – American citizens, because the the ability to permeate or penetrate U.S. networks, not just like uh, hardened secure networks, but also even everyday uh, functions of American society seem actually quite, quite vulnerable. Our next guest is Joshua Pollack, a researcher in nuclear affairs from the Monterey Institute. Well, that's hard. Um, if, if you're worried about EMP and the power grid, I, I would argue you should worry more about solar storms. Uh, you know, you can't deter the sun. Uh, but but uh, you know it, it is it is hard to know what what the most underappreciated uh, threat to the United States is. Maybe I'll put it this way. Maybe I'll just say this: There's only one country in the world that could end the existence of the United States uh, on any given day, and that is Russia. We don't think about that much. Maybe it's not a problem, but 
Uh, it's always a, a latent issue. The, the uh, uh, massive Cold War nuclear arsenals are not entirely gone. Uh, both sides operate them on a large scale. And they're, they're the only ones who could, you know, drop a thousand or so warheads on us on a given day. Next up, we have Ariane Tabatabai of Georgetown University, who works on issues related to Iran. It is the partisan nature of um, domestic politics in the U.S., uh, the fact that we can't get anything done, uh, the fact that even the most basic things that should really not be that controversial seem to take ages for anything to, to, to happen, to, to move forward. Um, and the fact that we can't have conversations across the aisle, um, it's incredibly difficult today for the two sides to be able to have a civilized conversation, right? Um, and, and I think that's, that's a huge threat to just domestic security. Our next guest is Alex Downs, professor at George Washington University who focuses on civilians in war and also regime change. The most underhyped threat is ourselves uh, in the sense that um, we keep adopting policies in response to perceived threats that are overreacting and then cause further problems. So uh, let's take oh, Iraq, for example. Um, um, that was a you know, perceived reaction to a threat that actually didn't exist. Uh, and then drew us into a decade-long war uh, where you know, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis were killed, thousands of Americans died. Uh, uh, take Libya, for example. Right? Uh, the common thread here that I'm sort of referring to is regime change and occupation. And surprise, surprise, I'm working on a book on this right now um, where I look at, you know, is, is regime change worth it, in a sense, to improve your relations with other states and also to... What does it lead? To, what kind of backlash does it lead to in those countries? Um, and the argument I make is that it rarely helps you in terms of, of bettering relations with with target countries, uh, and it often leads to horrible backlash, civil war, uh, overthrown leaders, uh, failed democratization uh, in in the places where it happens, and especially where the United States is doing it these days. These are places that are not uh, they're not. Uh, you know, just on the precipice of democratization, they're not. Uh, they're they're. They have all the preconditions, structural preconditions for civil wars, uh, and boom, you knock over the government, and that's exactly what happens. Next up, we have Colin Call, a former national security advisor to Vice President Joe Biden, who talked with us about the Iran deal. You know, this is this is going to be a little bit of a cop out because it's not like you know the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post doesn't have the periodic articles uh, about this. But I actually think that um, the landscape of our competition uh, with uh, with Iran in the Middle East is changing. Outside, of, we're talking about outside the four corners of the nuclear deal, in particular in the border areas between Iraq and Syria. So much has been focused in the last couple of years, for understandable reasons, on destroying the caliphate. That is destroying the Islamic State's uh, territorial base from which they can uh, threaten the, t the integrity of, of Iraq, Syria, and launch attacks against the United States and the West. That campaign is essentially culminated. Uh, Mosul uh, fell a few months ago. Raqqa fell uh, just 
in the past uh, week or so. Um, uh, they're really the only remaining uh, strongholds for the Islamic State are near the Iraq-Syria border. So on the Iraq side, I mentioned earlier uh, uh, Al-Qaim, uh, which is a traditional uh, Sunni insurgent stronghold on the Iraqi side of the, Syri of the border on the, on, in the mid-Euphrates River Valley. Uh, and then on the Syrian side, a stretch of towns um, uh, going up from Abu Kamal on, on just on the other side of Al-Qaim up to uh, Deir Azur. And I say all of this because right as we speak, uh, the same forces that we use to uh, defeat the Islamic State in uh, in Raqqa, the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is a coalition of northern Syrian Kurds and Arab tribes, is engaged in uh, a fight to retake uh, as, uh, areas around Deir Azur. The Assad regime, the Iranians, Hezbollah, and Russia are also uh, focused on those same areas. And the friction points, uh, the contact points between us and those forces are growing and growing at a time when geopolitical tensions remain strained with Russia and increasingly bad with Iran. So it's outside of the Iran nuclear deal, which I know we're going to talk about later, but I think is actually a hotbed or a, a potential flashpoint for conflict in which our forces uh, could be uh, targeted or killed by uh, by the axis of Assad uh, and vice versa in a way that could uh, spiral into, into conflict. Our next guest, Greg Koblenz, is an associate professor and director of the Biodefense Graduate Program at George Mason University. Look, I, I think the, the things that actually do kill Americans, I consider a national security threat. The opioid crisis and gun deaths uh, kill about 100,000 Americans each year. 100,000. Um, that is a public safety and national security crisis that has some foreign policy implications, especially on drugs that come into this country. And a second, I think, under-discussed uh, challenge or threat. It's out there. It comes every few weeks. We see some sort of hack or things like this. But cybersecurity, I actually feel like, is somewhere in our consciousness as a, a genuine threat. But we in the foreign policy realm have not really married up with the internet security folks to think about how this is actually altering the state of geopolitics, how it's changing the nature of state-to-state -state relations, how it's accelerating um, national security crises and actually leading to the sorts of things that we talked about in, in democracies, a greater sense of disarray and disunity. Um, so these hacks and hacktivists and countries uh, backing them actually have had a huge impact on geopolitics in a way that we haven't yet uh, strategically absorbed um, and haven't even begun to think about a effective poli policy response to it. Our next guest is Brian Katulis, who studies Middle Eastern issues at the Center for American Progress. So for uh, underrated threats, I have two, uh, one of which I know something about, the other I, I know nothing, but I will offer it anyways. Uh, I think the, the, the situation, the crisis in Venezuela is intensely disturbing. I Again, I know nothing about Latin America or Venezuela, but um, what I've seen in terms of the media coverage, in terms of the, the conditions there and the lack of medicine and the starvation, I'm just frankly surprised every day that there has not been some um, just popular uprising or military coup or civil war starting in that country. And when it, if and when that ever happens, it's going to have humongous implications for Latin America and therefore for U.S. foreign policy in that region. So I'm, um, you know, thankful that it hasn't come to that yet, but I just keep waiting for that shoe to drop and, and I don't think we're prepared to, to handle the repercussions. Um, the other underrated threat, uh, which is more in line with my um, background in, in biodefense, is uh, antimicrobial resistance. 
Um, there is a huge health crisis in not just in the U.S. but around the world in terms of um, uh, bugs that are now resistant to all the drugs that we have um, on the market for them. And our pipeline of new antibiotics is woefully thin. Uh, and so this problem is going to get worse. And what is kind of particularly um, concerning is that unlike Ebola, which is a naturally occurring infectious disease, uh, antimicrobial resistance or AMR, right? That's entirely a man-made phenomenon, right? We over-prescribe drugs to um, to patients. We give drugs to um, animals to promote um, health and growth. Um, and um, we don't have very good um, health practices in hospitals to prevent the transmission of, of um, drug-resistant um, bacteria. Right now, the estimates are that only 700,000 people in the world uh, are dying um, a year from from this. But there was actually a study that came out of the UK um, last year by economist uh, Sir John O'Neill that estimated by 2050, if trends don't change, we're going to see 10 million people a year dying from uh, antibiotic-resistant uh, drugs. And so this is putting us back in the pre-penicillin era where getting you know, a minor infection could be life-threatening. And uh, I think that is a highly underrated threat that we're not taking seriously enough. Last but not least, we have Aaron Mehta, who's a reporter with Defense News uh, and reports uh, all the time on all those defense budget issues you hear so much about. I think this has been talked about a bit, but it, the more I learn about it, the more it worries me, the infrastructure in the U.S. Um, and that includes issues like, you know, look, we haven't kept our bridges up the way we should, but it's security infrastructure. Uh, if you ever wrote an article about this a couple weeks ago, U.S. bases, right, military bases, they rely on the local power grids. They don't have their own power sources in most cases. So we saw this in Turkey uh, last year where the Turks cut off power to Insterlik in Turkey uh, for, right after the, uh, the attempted coup in Turkey. Um, you know, if you're a, a cyber attacker, you're China, you want to get in and mess with things, you can go in and shut down the gates essentially to a U.S. base. You could, you know, when the U.S. forces are trying to scramble something, you could get into the system through a public power utility or HVAC or something, get into a system and, and mess with the base. Uh, local, you know, if your base is in the middle of Alabama and your little local town is the one that's supporting it, they're not going to have cyber-hardened capabilities for this type of thing. So I think that's something that the, the military is starting to become aware of. Um, and broadly, I think infrastructure is an issue. I was actually surprised by how little agreement there was between people on this topic. It seemed like almost everybody came up with with a different topic. Some of them are a bit, are related to one another, certainly. Like you can hardly separate Trump from partisan gridlock, but it really is interesting that just depending on what they study, people seem to think of different overhyped threats off the top of their head. Yeah, it almost makes you want to believe in constructivism uh, because certainly people's professional uh, backgrounds seem to be priming them to view the world in very different ways. Um, and, and it kind of makes you wonder, you know, even uh, we professionals appear to have uh, maybe non-objective factors uh, in the mix in terms of how we are analyzing the world. Uh, I was very – you can draw some lines, like you said, between these, but um, they're very different answers. People also seem to take a slightly different take on this question. So for some people, they really were considering um, what is a big threat that we just don't really talk about at all. Um, and, you know, I think we had partisan gridlock for that. We had regime change, our own 
attempts at regime change for that. But then there were a couple of, of others. Uh, I think Samir uh, Lalwani talked about this, and and so did at least a couple of others. The idea that there might be topics like uh, cybersecurity, where it's a buzzword and everyone talks about it, but we're not actually doing anything to solve that problem. We all acknowledge it's a problem. We're, we're just not fixing it. Yeah, and I, and I think China similarly doesn't appear in the list for sort of a similar reason in that it's something people acknowledge um, and may, maybe at times has in the past has been what people would consider overhyped. Uh, but today, I think because it it's treated sort of in line with being a real thing, uh, maybe it didn't get the, the answer. You know, did, no one said, hey, China's actually the biggest threat out there. I, I know there's guests we could have had who would. Um, maybe we'll be in the show later. I have to ask you, Trevor, though, what do you think the most underappreciated threat to America is? I thought about this a little bit, and that's cheating because I, I had a lot of lead time to think about this. I should probably have a better answer. But uh, I'm going to go with the erosion of the American marketplace of ideas. And it, it, this is not a response to the Russian election hacking efforts and disinformation and, and that sort of thing, although that's a part of this now. Um, I, I really see this as a broader problem um, that uh, has a lot of different vectors uh, at work. And sort of the most fundamental one that's been a long time coming has been the fragmentation of the media and the rise of you know digital media and internet and so on, so that uh, we now have uh, lots of different fragmented bits of audience listening to their own stuff. And although I think, you know, the evidence is that most of us get most of the same news most of the time, it's also clear that there are new partisan media outlets popping up that are starting to drive the agenda, uh, you know, percolate uh, conspiracy theories and, and so on. And and they are also making it easier for people to sort of stay in their own tribes to hold on to bad and terrible ideas, even though they're factually just wildly wrong and so on. And and that fragmentation also is what, you know, allowed Russians to kind of get in, get their nose under the tent. Um, I think in the, you know, 50 years ago, the broadcast media was set up in a way that would have made it very hard for the Russians to hack, hack the media. And then on top of all that, you have Trump, Trump attacking the media, Trump lying routinely uh, and spreading his own sort of, you know, fake news out there. Uh, and then, you know, that the, po the polarization of politics that Ariane talked about, I think just sort of adds that special sauce to this whole thing. It just seems like it's impossible to have a reasonable conversation about any topic, much less about foreign policy. And so, you know, when, when I was in grad school, you know, I got mad at people for disagreeing with me about foreign affairs, but you could have a lot of good, deep conversation with just about any expert on it. And now it seems like it's getting a lot tougher. So, you know, that, that's where I am on underappreciated. Um, but what about you? I have to admit I'm a lot less constructivist on this than you are. Um, I honestly think the thing that we underappreciate the most is, you know, what some people are calling the return of great power politics, but might more accurately just be described as the orientation of American foreign policy. It is so common these days for our foreign policy to focus on non-state actors, on terrorist groups, on these very sort of diverse or hard to spot threats, things like cyber, things like Russian election interference and all of this. We, we sort of talk about these things a lot and it sometimes seems that our foreign policy apparatus is primarily set up to deal with them, while at the same time, China has, uh, you know, a huge 
huge and expanding foothold in Asia. Russia might be a declining power, but they're a declining power that is, as Joshua Pollock pointed out, um, can still wipe the U.S. out in a matter of minutes. And I think we really underestimate the extent to which our foreign policy is not actually focused on where the real existential threats are. And it's focused instead on these tiny little fiddling around the edges issues. Um, so, so I'm going to go with the return of great power politics. So, so to, fr- to rephrase that, Emma, basically your greatest fear is actually constructivism. <laughs> <laughs> We've made up all sorts of false threats and we are ignoring that really big thing in front of us. That's actually a threat. That's actually a, both a, um, you know, an homage to constructivism and a, and a lament at the same time. That's it's very clever. I, I think you're, you're absolutely right on that. Um, so with that, I guess, let's, let's pivot and talk about the other half of this question, because we did ask everybody two questions. We asked them what they thought the, the biggest, most underappreciated threat to the U.S. was, and then we asked them what they thought the most overrated threat was. And I think perhaps unsurprisingly, there was a lot more uh, general agreement on this question. Yeah, I'm going to guess listeners can imagine what that area of agreement is, is going to be? Uh, in terms of uh, which is the most inflated threat, that's a hard one. I think most, pretty much all the threats that are talked about in Washington, D.C. are overinflated. The way I'm going to answer this is what's the most overinflated threat given the amount of resources that we spend to tackle this inflated threat. And that I have to go with the more traditional response, which is terrorism. Uh, the amount of money that we have spent post 9-11 on the terrorism problem is so immense and so disproportionate to uh, the threat that actually exists that it makes it the most egregious overblown threat, I think, by far. I think there's probably sort of a couple of them out there. And generally, it's sort of the category of non-state actors. To me, I think it's overhyped a lot in the United States. I mean, there was certainly a set of non-state actors that committed one of the most heinous acts on U.S. soil uh, a little more than 15 years ago. But I think we tend to overinflate both capability, intention, and reach and scale of these groups. Um, so, you know, I'm sure we'll get, get to this in our discussion on Afghanistan. But we routinely cite uh, that there are 20 terrorist organizations sort of floating around in Afghanistan and Pakistan. But we never really talk about whether those groups are actually direct threats to the U.S. homeland, which is the ostensible reason why we're uh, still remaining in Afghanistan. So do they have the intention uh, and like in terms of serious, like, you know, clear intention of this and the capability to strike the U.S. homeland? And I don't know if anyone's done sort of a serious analysis. I assume the IC has, but I don't know in the public domain if I've really seen people unpack this. Or for that matter, I haven't seen anyone even try to enumerate these 20 groups. I mean, I've, I've spent some time myself doing this, so now I know. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's just baffling that we sort of like hang on to this. And then this is justification for maintaining America's longest war without at least tackling that question. I think overhyped, that, that's easy. Um, EMP, uh, electromagnetic pulse. Uh, th- there's a whole little cottage industry on, on hyping the threat from EMP. I'm not sure why. It may, may be to enlist additional support for missile defense. But EMP is in effect from nuclear weapons. So if you have a concern about nuclear attack, you have a concern about EMP. If you have a concern about EMP, you have a concern about nuclear attack. It, it's the least menacing uh, weapon effect, I think, after blast, heat, uh, prompt radiation, nuclear fallout. Um, I, I think it, it comes dead last. Uh, there are debates about uh, exactly uh, how powerful it might be in frying uh, electrical circuits, which is what it is. But you know what? I, I just think that takes 
takes a back seat to mass destruction? Um, so <laughs> the answer to your first question, the sort of overinflated threat um, is uh, naturally for me is going to be Iran. Um, I think that there is uh, a lot of uh, discussion, a lot of rhetoric around uh, Iran's intentions and capabilities that are frankly detached from the reality of the country. Uh, the way people in D.C. specifically talk about Iran, you know, it is on a par with Russia and China which if you look at their actual capabilities and including their in, and, and their uh, intentions is not at all um, within the realm of reality. Um, I think it's something that the Iranians would love to, to you know, um, showcase as, yes, we have those, those capabilities. You know, we, we can, we can uh, fight any major power and, and do well. But in reality, that's not at all the, uh, where they are. That's a tough question. There's multiple contenders, um, but I put my money on uh, the Islamic State and terrorism more general. Generally, um, I was at a, a, a workshop over the weekend that involved a lot of, of of U.S. military personnel, other people working in the defense establishment, and uh, uh, one of the speakers asked, uh, "You know, do do you raise your hand if you think that China?" is the biggest threat to the United States today. And virtually no hands went up. Um, and which implied to me that everyone's focusing on something else, uh, which is the, the terrorism threat. So um, I probably find myself in good company by making this argument, uh, especially given John Mueller's views on the, the subject. Um, but uh, I've always thought that uh, uh, Focusing on the, the the terrorist threat is uh, is it's a spectac you know we've had some spectacular attacks don't get me wrong uh, in this country um, but the the amount of resources and attention and foreign governments we've overthrown in pursuit of uh, of abating a threat that is really you're still less likely to be uh, killed in a terrorist attack by a foreigner, foreign uh, uh, terrorist than you are to be like shot by a baby or, you know, some, you know, some ridiculous statistic um, that uh, I think, you know, of course, with, as with any thread, you want to pay attention to it. But uh, the, the things that's being used to justify like a, a major revision in U.S. immigration policy, um, support for uh, regimes uh, uh, fighting in various places really uh, have mixed feelings about um, that uh, I think it, it's time, you know, 15, 16 years after 9-11 to step back and say, hey, you know, what's, what's really the, the threat here? Yes, the Islamic State, right, overran large parts of Iraq and Syria, but by turning themselves into a state, they made themselves a big fat target and they're actually way easier to deal with than, uh, say, insurgents that fight in a, in a guerrilla fashion, right? They, once they tried to hold territory, their, their days were numbered. They're going to dissolve back into a guerrilla organization and they're going to continue, um, but uh, at a much lower level of intensity. Right I actually think the most overhyped threat uh, that the president talks about on a fairly regular basis is the threat posed by immigrants and refugees. Uh, I think you've actually just seen uh, in the last couple of days uh, that we're about to turn the spigot back on on refugees, although the total caps, I suspect, will be lower than they were under the Obama administration with some cosmetic changes in vetting. Um, my, my guess is they're, they're not all that significant. 
Uh, and I think that's in a recognition that that uh, refugees don't pose a meaningful threat uh, to uh, the United States. Um, the same is true of immigrants. I think that you've you've seen a president who has demonized these individuals because they're easy scapegoats for threats that don't actually exist. There 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 have been no deadly terrorist incidents uh, uh, perpetrated by uh, immigrants or refugees from the countries that the, that the president has has targeted. Uh, and in fact, alienating us from those communities is probably more likely to generate uh, uh, risks. Of of, of homegrown extremism, people, uh, you know, taking action against the United States that are already here um, and or not being able to work with communities who could otherwise provide law enforcement with uh, tips uh, uh, on plots like that. So I think it's I don't think it's it's overhyped generically, uh, but I think for the president and much of his base, uh, the immigrant and refugee issue is is overhyped in a way that has real negative consequences uh, for actual human beings. I think it's it may be odd in terms of overhype to say this the day after a terrorist attack in Manhattan. But when you look at sort of the basic statistics of what makes Americans unsafe and what makes you know what is a real threat, it is not Islamist uh, terrorism, um, which is the thing that we dedicate hundreds of billions of dollars each year to defend against. Um, uh, yes, there are threats out there, but to put it in proportion, I think you know there were thirty thousand. Uh, total terrorist attacks globally in the world, and about 75% of them were in, in 10 countries, concentrated in 10 countries. Um, so far few are Americans are, are threatened by this uh, issue, but uh, the way it's dealt with in our politics, the way we, we react to tragedies and, and awful instances like yes, uh, the attack on October 31st in Manhattan, um, it, it, it serves as a knee-jerk response uh, where we dedicate far too many resources and not to the things that I think are under-discussed. So starting with the overrated threat actually ties back to the first news story we talked about in terms of North Korea. Um, the, the the fear that there is a, a looming nuclear war with North Korea, I think, is is grossly exaggerated. North Korea is developing these weapons because they are intensely insecure, vulnerable, uh, paranoid, isolated country, and they will only use these weapons in extremists to defend their existence. Um, and the only thing that would trigger a North Korean use of nuclear weapons would be a U.S. invasion of North Korea um, when we know that. And we are not, therefore, going to undertake that uh, effort. And so the idea that North Korea, that Kim Jong-un is irrational or he's crazy or that he's going to use nuclear weapons as a way of trying to reunite the peninsula, I think, is just um, misplaced. And the deterrence will work with Kim Jong-un the same way it worked with Stalin and Mao. And um, uh, it's not a comfortable position to be in. But I think that's the reality, and we need to look at it that way. I'm going to pick losing our edge in space, um, which is kind of a weird one, and it's very open-ended. But uh, we hear a lot about how the U.S. has fallen behind the space, and, and we're not matching up. U.S. is still pretty good. And yes, other countries are getting better, and other countries are able to launch things with more capabilities and, you know, Yada, yada, yada. But I don't think it's to the point where the U.S. is in danger of losing its Overwatch capabilities or, or being able to maintain that edge. Um, scientifically, maybe you can make the case other countries are doing more on the civil science side and we've lost our edge there, but that's kind of a separate question. Okay. As promised, a lot more agreement uh, on those than on what the biggest threat facing the United States is. Um, what do you make of the fact that terrorism features so prominently in these answers? 
You know, I think it could go one of two ways. Um, I'm a little concerned that everyone said this because they were visiting us here at the Cato Institute and Cato has long been known for its very uh, anti-hype approach to the war on terror. Um, But I prefer to think that it's perhaps not that, that in fact that this is a reflection that foreign policy specialists, IR specialists in America, are starting to come to the conclusion that we have perhaps overreacted to terrorism, that everything that has happened since 9-11 has perhaps not made us more safe, it has made us less safe. And you see in some of the answers that we heard from people, it's not just terrorism. It's the idea of non-state actors and where we're intervening in different countries. It's the idea of refugees and immigration, which, let's be frank, is fundamentally linked in the Trump administration to this notion of who's a threat as a terrorist. And so I think there is more general agreement among practitioners now that terrorism is perhaps not the threat that it used to be, um, or at the very least that we have overreacted to it. Yeah, I think that, you know, that's an optimistic take. I, I hope you're right that those answers reflect a, an emerging new consensus that terrorism is is sort of maybe the size of a bread box, but not bigger than a bread box. But the other potential way to look at it is that it shows the unfortunate hijacking of national security conversation by terrorism. And so no matter what uh, part of national and international security you touch as a professional, as an analyst, a researcher, terrorism has taken over the conversation and it's become attached. As there's a securitization, not to use a constructivist term on you, uh, but there's been a process of terrorization of every every subtopic. So nuclear stuff, oh, terrorists are going to get nuclear weapons. Immigrants, well, they're terrorists. Uh, you know, the Middle East, full of terrorists. Uh, you, you just can't talk about almost any part of national security now without turning it into a conversation about terrorism. And that's particularly funny when, I mean, certainly when you were in grad school, but even when I was in grad school, terrorism wasn't really that widely studied. And even if you step outside of the academy and you're talking about how government agencies are structured for foreign policy, national security, how the State Department's structured, how the intelligence community is structured, you do see this real tension between the mission that went over almost entirely to counter terrorism. Um, in the mid-2000s and now is sort of starting to creep back to more along the lines of its traditional approach. Um, And that's happening, I think, in those agencies. It is not happening in the Defense Department, which still seems to be going full bore uh, on the terrorism issue. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, given that then, Emma, your answer as to the most overhyped threat? I have to go with a majority here. It's uh, frankly, I think terrorism is head and shoulders ahead of all the other overhyped threats when we're when we're talking about overhyped threats to America. Yeah, that's that's sort of a short discussion for me too. I can't, you know, having just written something about about that, I'm I'm, I'm right there with you. I don't. It's I'm trying to imagine or trying to think of any other threat that's ever been overhyped as much as terrorism. I mean, the, the Red Scare in, in the 50s, that was, that was bad. And I mean, maybe people were overly scared of the Soviets in general during the Cold War. Uh, so maybe you'd say, well, that lasted longer. Uh, and maybe we did a lot of dumb things too. But like in the, such a short time to have so much change based on what turned out to be such a small threat relatively. Wow. It's hard to be terrorism. Well, I think on that note, we, we probably have to wrap up. Um, but we'd like to wish you all, you know, happy holidays and, and a happy new year. We hope that 2018 will perhaps be somewhat less eventful than 2017 was or 2016 
before it. Um, before we go, we want to draw your attention to an upcoming event. Trevor? Absolutely, yes. Uh, please join us on January 30th, that's a Tuesday, for the Trump Doctrine at One Year, a half-day conference where we are going to uh, look back at the first year of the Trump Doctrine, America First, or what would you call it? And uh, a wide range of uh, experts and practitioners will be joining us. We're going to have uh, panels on the Middle East, on uh, Iran, North Korea, and all sorts of other things. Uh, it should be a great time. So that is January 30th. Uh, in the meantime, you can, uh, you know, if you got a question, you have a comment, you want to say good job or pitch an idea for a future show, um, tweet at us at hashtag FPPowerProblems. Thanks, as always, to our producer, uh, Jeff Geld. And uh, if you liked it, um, please consider giving us a good rating on iTunes. Thanks a lot.